Hi, I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. Now, in today's episode of Far-Fetched, I'm going to do a couple of things I haven't done before. First of all, I want to give a shout out to my nephew, Ellis, who I just found out the other day, listens to this podcast regularly. Thank you, Ellis. I'm so pleased to hear that you are enjoying the podcast, and I really hope you'll encourage the rest of your family to listen as well. Second thing I'm doing differently today is, surprise, today, far-fetched, at least for a few minutes, is going to be a true crime podcast. Now, I've dipped into the true crime well a little bit recently when I confessed to killing Alfred Hitchcock by stealing his parking sign from outside his bungalow at Universal Studios. That was a little bit of true crime right there. Today, I'm going to get a little more truer, crimier than, than that. Because a, a news story uh, fell into my lap this, this past week that involved a huge, huge crime that involved someone that I know or someone that I knew long ago. So let's go back to long ago. In a previous career, I worked as a creative director for the marketing and PR office of a large healthcare system in southern Wisconsin, Mercy Health System. It was, uh, it was an okay job. It, obviously, it wasn't the kind of writing that I wanted to be doing, but I liked the people I worked with a lot. We had a really good, cohesive, fun team, and I liked my boss a lot. Barb was, uh, Barb was a really fun person to work with. She had a great sense of humor. She gave me pretty much unlimited autonomy because she trusted me and she knew that I, she knew that I did good work. So she just basically would, you know, give me assignments, give me a budget and say, go to it. And I can only assume that that is how she treated everyone else in the department because everybody was pretty happy there. Barb also had this funny way of when things got super stressful in the office, which they did pretty regularly. Uh, I just have these really funny memories of Barb just sort of running around the office looking for something she lost or trying to get ready for a meeting that she's already late for, and she would just keep saying, I'm having out-of-body, out-of-body experience. That always cracked me up. Anyway, so that was back in the 1990s. This is a long, long time ago that I worked at Mercy Health System. And I haven't really kept in touch with the people I worked with there a whole lot, here and there maybe a little bit, but not a whole lot. So fast forward to about a year ago, my wife and I are making frequent trips between southern Wisconsin and Atlanta as we're packing up to move and we're house house hunting and all that all that stuff. And every time we drive through Rockford, Illinois, I see this gigantic new hospital just rising out of the prairie that is being built by Mercy Health System, my old employers. And I'm just staggered by the size of this hospital. It's, it's really just ridiculous scale. But it inspired me to look up my old boss, Barb's, contact info on LinkedIn. I was pretty sure that I had, was connected with her on LinkedIn. So I went, and sure enough, there she was. So I just sent her a little note and said, hey, c- congratulations on the new hospital. They must really be keeping you jumping. You know, just a nice, friendly little note. And she just wrote back something like, yeah, thanks. 
And I was I was surprised and a little, little disappointed that she was that blunt about it. But, you know, whatever. Some people just want to leave the past in the past. So I just let it go at that. Little did I know. Well, the other day, uh, I get a news brief in my email inbox. And I still get news updates from the Southern Wisconsin news sites. And, you know, sometimes I look at them, sometimes I don't. Well, the other day, one came through with the headline about how a Mercy Health System executive had just pleaded guilty in federal court to charges of wire fraud and tax evasion. And I thought, wow, Mercy Health System, holy crap, I've got to read that article. There might be names in there that I recognize. So I, I click on the headline and start reading the article, and it turns out the criminal is my old boss, Barb. Holy crap. She pled guilty to wire fraud and tax evasion because she was caught with an accomplice embezzling $3 million from Mercy Health System. Now, I have to put this in perspective. I learned just the other day from reading up on this story that Barb's salary as vice president of marketing for this health network, Barb's salary was $350,000 a year. Think about that. Three hundred fifty k a year is your salary. And yet somehow that's not enough. You need more. Holy crap. So I start reading this news article and my jaw just hits the floor. What she had done was she was contracting out a lot of marketing work to a small advertising agency just south of the Wisconsin-Illinois border. This happened a lot when I worked there, too. There would just be certain jobs that we would farm out to an outside agency when we couldn't handle it or we were, you know, backed up or whatever. So, you know, that's not an unusual circumstance for the marketing department. So she's been working with this advertising company in Illinois for a while. And sometime around six or seven years ago, they cook up this plot where the ad agency will invoice Barb an inflated invoice. He'll charge way, way more than the job actually cost. Barb pays the invoice, and then this guy kicks back part of the overpayment to Barb. Barb, in turn, opened a business account at a local bank, small town bank, Milton, Wisconsin. I mean, blink and you'll miss it. (laughs) That seems to me to be like maybe the worst move ever to keep the money in a local small town bank, but that's what she did. She, so she opens this business account at the local bank, and she starts putting all this illegally gained money into this account. They keep this up for five years, and in the course of five years, these two scoundrels made off with $3 million. So in addition to her salary of three hundred fifty k a year at the health system, Barb is also skimming like hundreds of thousands of dollars off of, off of the hospital's accounts every year for five years. They mysteriously shut down uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, you know, maybe because they were feeling the heat. Maybe they felt they were being closed in on. I don't know. The details about that are pretty sketchy so far in the story. It just broke like a, a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, so my old boss, Barb, who always had out-of-body experience, turns out she's a fucking super criminal. 
I'm just, I'm just having such a hard time coming to grips with this. Part of me is just horrified and shocked at the sheer criminality of it. Ripping off your employer for $3 million over the course of five years. And this, you know, and this scam was meticulously planned. You know, they, they were not leaving anything to chance. So part of me is just like horrified by the audacity of that. But I got to be honest, another part of me is I'm, I'm just laughing my ass off at the idea of Barb Bortner super criminal. I just, I just can't get over it. It's so unlikely. And here's another thing. Here's, here's a really, really, really sad part of this whole story. Barb has four kids. What's going to happen to them now? Their lives are fucked. Also, Barb's parent, this small town we're talking about, Janesville, Wisconsin, Barb's family is really, really preeminent in Janesville. And as I recall, in the Janesville social scene, that family were, you know, they were kind of Janesville royalty. They were business owners. They were very successful, you know, a lot of community involvement. And now they're having to deal with this shame. How the hell is this going to affect them? It's just staggering to think how many lives are going to be completely ruined by all of this. So that's my true crime story. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what the sentences are for any of this. Apparently, they just pled guilty uh, just recently. The reason the story was going through the media cycle again when I saw it apparently was because the the federal prosecutor uh, in southern Wisconsin issued a press release explaining what was going on. And so that's, that's how it fell into my lap. So I'm still just sitting here shaking my head and just wondering, whoa. How does something like that happen? Oh, and one more detail about this story. It was mentioned in a couple of the news articles I read that the hospital may go after Barb and her buddy for restitution. Think about that. Barb and her accomplice may have to pay the hospital back the $3 million. God, I can hardly even bear to imagine it. All of this makes me go back to a year ago, though, when I messaged Barb on LinkedIn and she sent back that blunt little yeah, thanks note. Now I get it. Maybe she had something else on her mind that day. Now let's get back to what Farfetched is really about, writing. In a recent episode, I bemoaned the fact that when I was a young film student at the University of Southern California, I had taken my first ever screenwriting class taught by an Oscar-nominated writer named Melvin Walt, and I had really failed to take advantage of the opportunity. I didn't really remember much of the class. I didn't really remember what I had written for the class. It was all, it was all a fog to me, and I felt kind of dumb about that. Well, I'm happy to say that since I recorded that episode, I've done some more digging and excavating through my old files as I continue to get my new office in order, and I came across something very interesting. I came across the work I had done for that USC scriptwriting class. I had done a, I'd written a very uh, detailed treatment for, the, for a movie script, and then I had written the first 30 pages of that script. And more than that, I found the note from my teacher, Melvin Wald, in which he gave me my grade for the semester. Here's what Melvin had to say. Good imagination and logical structure. Even though you have not completed your screenplay, true, 
Your treatment and the 30 pages indicate you have a solid grasp of the form and of your dramatic and cinematic material. Your grade is A. That's so awesome. I got an A in my first ever scriptwriting class taught by an Oscar-nominated screenwriter. And I'll be honest, I especially love that he says, even though you have not completed your screenplay. Oops. I'm very proud of this. And now, without further ado, I'm going to read that treatment and maybe even read the 30 pages of script because... Since I uncovered them a week or so ago, I have not looked at them. I have not reread these. I've been waiting to do it right here on mic as part of the podcast. So I have no idea what this is or whether I'm going to like it or not. But here goes. It's called Earthbound. As the movie opens, we are in the midst of a grove of trees. It is nighttime, but there is the dim light of a full moon. A young couple wanders into view. They appear to be about 17 or 18 years old and are obviously under the spell of their romantic surroundings. We follow them as they walk among the trees, hand in hand, and eventually stop and sit at a bench in a clearing. We draw closer to them and can hear what they are saying. It's romantic gibberish. The boy looks up to the sky and says, Full Earth tonight. It's beautiful, says the girl, as we track behind them and tilt up to see the source of the moonlight, the Earth. The setting is actually an arboretum on the moon. During a slow zoom in on the earth, we roll titles. After titles, we return to the couple on the bench. As they draw back from a kiss, the girl says, Come on, and runs away. The boy follows, calling after her. He chases her through the foliage, but she keeps running, baiting him on. Suddenly, the girl trips and falls behind thick bushes. The boy catches up to find her on the ground, holding her foot. She says she's okay, but that she tripped on something sharp. The boy looks around and finds the object in question, a metal corner sticking through the ground. They dig away dirt to find a metal panel, a door. Curiosity gets the best of them, and they remove the panel and climb down the ladder underneath. The ladder comes out into a long corridor, dimly lit and apparently unused. The girl wants to leave, but the boy talks her into searching the corridor with him. There are no doors until the very end. They open the single door and step into a gigantic hangar, housing five identical objects unlike anything they have ever seen. They are Earth-to-Moon spaceships. Stranger still are old pressure suits scattered about the room, bearing the names of all the adults living on the moon, including the parents of the boy and girl. Frightened and puzzled, the boy and girl return to the moon base arboretum, and then the housing complex, telling everyone about what they've seen. Word spreads quickly among the children, despite the adults' attempts to stifle and discredit the story. Zachary, the oldest member and acknowledged leader of the lunar community, calls a general assembly of the citizens, hoping to explain away the ships and suits and quiet the children. On his way to the assembly, Zachary argues with his right-hand man, Aaron. Aaron says that they're trapped and have no choice but to tell the children the truth about what they have found. Zachary disagrees. He maintains that the truth must be kept from the children at all cost. He tells the children, all 100 of them gathered in the central commons area of the moon base, that the machines are, as they appear, ships for traveling through space. He tells them that their ancestors used the ships to escape from their dying planet centuries ago and had chosen to make the moon their new home. Zachary believes he has satisfied their curiosity until the young boy who discovered the ships steps forward with one of the pressure suits. It bears Zachary's name and a NASA logo, a picture of Earth. Trapped, Zachary doesn't know what to say. 
The older children realize they have inadvertently trapped their parents in an elaborate lie, involving their very ancestry, and are incensed. Alexander, the most vocal, and at 21, one of the oldest, demands that they know the truth. He wants to be taken to Earth in one of the ships to find out what has been hidden from them all their lives. Zachary is nearly petrified at the horror of having been discovered, while Aaron and the other 38 adults are silent with shame. Suddenly, Zachary announces that he will take Raphael, Selene, Alexander, and Virginia Dare, the four oldest children, on a trip to Earth the next morning. And saying nothing more, he hastens out of the commons. The children are now as baffled as they are upset, for they haven't the slightest idea what they have uncovered and what they will ultimately face. As the small ship hurtles towards Earth, Zachary haltingly, reluctantly, tells his four passengers of their true heritage. He speaks as if he were confessing his sins, as indeed it will turn out that he is. Zachary's story begins 20 years in the past, in the year 2006. At this point in history, space exploration and technology have flourished. Although interstellar travel remains an impractical dream, the solar system has been fully explored and in some cases colonized. Most colonies, however, are crude settlements dependent on Earth for almost everything essential to life. Man's crowning achievement in space is United North America's huge self-sustaining moon base, capable of supporting hundreds of people for hundreds of years. Despite man's staggering technological achievements, he still has not transcended his pettiness and ambition. As a result, the world's superpowers are once more on the brink of hostilities. This time, though, total warfare appears imminent, as political relations inexplicably deteriorate. As the situation worsens, each country recalls all its spacefaring personnel, among them the 40 adults now living on the moon. Earth's best minds were the ones sent on space missions, and they were needed on Earth. At first for efforts to avoid warfare, then for the war effort itself. So in due course, all of man's space outposts were abandoned. Cape Kennedy, Florida, by this time, hosts a gigantic multi-agency government complex. NASA's spaceport is surrounded by military and defense installations, as well as an emergency White House. It is from here that the first thermonuclear warhead was launched, the harbinger of Armageddon. It is from this same spot that in the waning hours of man's existence on Earth, a group of 40 men and women, high-ranking NASA personnel, commandeered a fleet of five Earth-to-moon spaceships and escaped to the moon base in order that the human race survive and be given a second chance. Among these men and women, three couples already have a child apiece, Alexander, Raphael, and Selene, all infants at the time. A fourth couple has a daughter shortly after their arrival on the moon, Virginia Dare, the first of the new human race. Zachary, who conceived of and organized the escape, has devised an elaborate plan whereby the children they raise shall never be told of man's history, man's evil. This shall be a bold experiment in which the evil nature of man is repressed in the hopes that the human race will develop this second time as beings possessing only the quality of good. Now, 20 years later, the experiment has progressed admirably. Raphael, Alexander, Selene, and Virginia Dare are now young adults, the oldest members of the second human race. The lunar base is now home for nearly 100 children, from infants to young adults, all believing up to the present that mankind originated on the moon. Recounting the story has been very traumatic for Zachary, and he seems exhausted by the time he has finished. Raphael, Alexander, and the others, beginning to realize the magnitude of their parents' deception, want to see the Earth more than ever. They eventually arrive on the Earth and descend over New York City. 
and we watch as their ship glides past the rubbled yet recognizable remains of the Statue of Liberty, the Empire State Building, and the United Nations Building. Zachary pilots the ship southward along the Atlantic seaboard and over the ruins of countless cities, among them Washington, D.C. These horrifying vistas trigger vague, long-buried memories in Raphael, Selene, and Alexander, and they begin to feel strangely attuned to this world. Virginia Dare, although she has never before been on the earth, is inexplicably drawn to it. Zachary, on the other hand, is visibly shaken by the sight of the ruins of his original home. He tells the children that he feels an evil presence of some sort. Zachary lands the ship at the site of the huge multi-agency complex straddling Cape Kennedy, choosing this spot because it spawned both the destruction and the escape 20 years earlier. The base, of course, sustained damage in the war, but is still basically intact. Zachary leads his party inside, and after descending several flights of stairs, ushers them inside a vast videotape microfilm library, its walls lined with thousands of tapes. He tells them that they should be able to find answers to all their questions among these files of information, and switches on a view screen to demonstrate. The screen replays news footage of the outbreak of war. Zachary, upon seeing this, becomes almost violently agitated and leaves the library. The four children begin to pour through the tapes, finding old TV shows, books, and educational tapes, all depicting some aspect of the old earth. Alexander leaves to search some more, and we follow. He eventually comes across a large war room, the center of which is occupied by an oval table surrounded by 13 chairs, each with a corresponding video monitor and nameplate. Examining the names on the table, he is surprised to find Zachary's name among them. At that moment, the lights in the room go out. Alexander asks, who's there? But there's only silence. Meanwhile, Raphael, Selene, and Virginia Dare have seen enough of the tapes in the library and have decided to look around themselves. Virginia Dare decides to go off on her own, and Raphael and Selene go off together in a different direction. In a brief interlude between the two, we realize that they are not just friends, but lovers as well. Selene is disturbed by the mysterious memories of Earth that keep surfacing in her conscious mind, and wonders whether Zachary is right about some evil presence on the Earth. Raphael tells her that there is nothing to be afraid of, that it's all in Zachary's mind. He is not entirely correct. Wandering through the complex, they soon find a room lined with sophisticated electronic equipment. Enthralled by the control panels covered with endless switches, they begin pushing buttons indiscriminately. Zachary, wandering through that area, hears them and goes to find them. He becomes alarmed when he sees what they're doing and pulls them away from the control boards. What Raphael and Selene didn't realize was that this is the launch bunker for a thermonuclear warhead. Years ago, a Leviathan-class rocket had been set up to destroy the moon base in case of an American defeat. Certain technologies were better destroyed. Had Raphael and Selene pushed the wrong buttons, they could have launched the still-activated missile and obliterated the moon base. Suddenly, Virginia Dare's voice is heard echoing through the hallways. Her voice sounds frenzied, terrified. Zachary, Selene, and Raphael run outside but find the corridor empty. They follow the sound of Virginia's calls until they head her off on a staircase, she is in a state of extreme excitement, but blurts out that she has found Alexander's body. She leads the rest to the war room, where the central table has been ripped to shreds. Bloodstains cover the floor and walls, and Alexander has been torn limb from limb. Contrary to current cinematic trends, we will not see Alexander's dismembered body. Raphael, Selene, and Virginia Dare have never been exposed to any type of violence, and are in a state of total shock. 
Zachary, equally disgusted, tells the children that they must leave as soon as possible. He fears that his evil presence is responsible and will get the rest of them in time. Finding communications equipment, Zachary signals the moon base. Once Aaron is patched into the line, Zachary tells him what has happened to Alexander. He explains that ever since the war, he has been haunted by a strange nightmare, that the profound evil that brought about that great destruction has become an entity unto itself, still infesting the earth after all these years. This nightmare formed the basis of his fears regarding a return to earth. Now he claims that his nightmare is indeed true and that mankind cannot be allowed back on earth, lest he fall victim to this evil once more. He tells Aaron that he will bring his party back before they too are destroyed. The strain of the entire experience suddenly overwhelms Zachary to the extent that he blacks out at the console. Aaron, meanwhile, is very upset by the whole conversation. He is afraid that the experience has been too much all at once for the man. It has become obvious to him that Zachary can no longer distinguish reality from fantasy. Then there's the matter of who or what could have killed Alexander. Aaron immediately takes off for Earth. He arrives at the spaceport that night, and finding nobody outside, ventures into the complex in search of the group. Losing his way in the poorly lit passages, he eventually finds himself in one of the damaged portions of the building. While looking for a way out, Aaron discovers Zachary wandering several levels below. He calls down to Zachary through the twisted flights of stairs that separate them. Zachary displays more displeasure than surprise at seeing Aaron. Aaron asks about Selene, Raphael, and Virginia Dare, and Zachary replies that they are sleeping in the library, safe and sound. When Aaron asks about Alexander's murder, however, Zachary becomes upset. He tells Aaron that Alexander had found the war room and that he followed him in. Before he could speak, the lights went out and he felt a third presence in the room. The next thing he remembers, he was with Raphael and Selene. Aaron, thinking he knows what happened, tells Zachary that there is no evil presence at all. When Zachary found Alexander in the war room, he killed him, simply to hide the fact that he had been a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This accusation enrages Zachary, and as he becomes agitated, he gradually begins to glow and metamorphose through the use of animated effects until he is a huge, grotesque character of a human figure. The Zachary thing begins to shake the already weakened walls until the landing Aaron is on shakes apart and drops Aaron to the ground several stories below. Meanwhile, Raphael and Selene and Virginia Dare have awakened and gone outside, expecting to find Zachary ready to leave for the moon. Instead, they find the second shuttle ship. Puzzled, they return to the complex to find out who has joined their group. Once inside the structure, they hear the sound of collapsing stone and metal echoing through the halls. Following the sound, they find Aaron's body in a pile of rubble and disappearing down a hallway, a gigantic, luminous thing. The three children decide without hesitation that this must be the evil force that Zachary was trying to protect them from. Fearing that it is now after Zachary, they follow the strange noises of the thing through the corridors of the complex. They are soon led to the control bunker for the Leviathan rocket. Inside is the shimmering human thing. As the three children watch, it becomes Zachary. He begins to speak, but only with considerable effort. He asks them to have mercy on him, for he has no control of what he is doing. Raphael, Selene, and Virginia Dare, standing just inside the doorway, terrified of what they are watching. Zachary is just now realizing what is happening. He was right all along about man's evil surviving. Since he was born into the old evil human race, he made the most accessible vessel for the evil. It had used him to destroy Aaron and Alexander. Zachary has no control. 
Suddenly he changes again into the luminous monster and shouts out in a horrifying imitation of Zachary's voice. What he tried to overcome has overcome him instead. He dared to create a race that knew nothing of me. He and his people must be uncreated. With that, the figure launches the Leviathan to destroy the moon base. Virginia Dare, having spent time on the voyage to Earth learning how to fly the ship, realizes that there is only one way to avert the destruction of the moon base. She races to the spaceport and takes off in one of the ships, eventually overtaking the rocket. She flies into the path of the Leviathan, and as it rises from below Virginia's body, explodes, symbolically conceiving Zachary's ideal new human race. Back in the bunker, the Zachary thing cannot believe what has happened. Virginia Dare performed an act of ultimate good, a concept so overpowering that it negates its entire reason to be. It has been defeated by what it hoped to destroy. It lapses back into the Zachary form, falling to the ground. Raphael and Selene run to him, and Selene says, Your grand experiment succeeded after all. It just needed to be tested. Without warning, Zachary changes back into the evil one, which then self-destructs in a spectacular, convulsing ball of light. Raphael and Selene head for the ship to send a message home. Earth will wait. Well, wow, that's my first time reading that uh, in about 40 years. And it's okay. It's definitely drawing very heavily from my favorite science fiction movie of all time, Forbidden Planet. I've always been fascinated by the idea of a racial subconscious and its capacity to generate evil, which is what Forbidden Planet is all about. (laughs) Clearly, that's what was in my head when I was writing this script. But as any writer will know, you kind of, it's kind of typical to start out by copying, by mimicking something you really admire, something that really inspires you, and then trying to put your own twist on it. Have I succeeded in that? Nah, I'm not really sure. I appreciate the fact that uh, Melvin gave me an A, and I will probably read the 30 pages of script in the next episode of Farfetched. Thanks for joining me. And thank you for joining me, especially Ellis. 